It's a Thursday episode of Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston. And before we begin, I want to mention some emails and texts I got yesterday in response to some things we said about the proposed constitutional amendment on abortion. We had a discussion about the pragmatism of calling people pregnant persons instead of women. And I got some notes from people who took offense to that. Uh, I, I, I just would like to say we talk about a great many things on this podcast. We try to provide extra perspective. Um, we're, we're, we were talking about the pragmatics of getting this thing passed yesterday. But what bothered me about the notes I got was the kind of the condemnation of what we said. And we're preparing a big project for this weekend about civil discourse. And we've learned a lot in the past month as we've reported this and put it together about listening to each other rather than passing judgment. That that there are a great many people in this country that are troubled by how pronouns have changed and labels have changed because they feel like it's their language too and they really had no say. And they may just not be sensitive enough to why some people feel strongly about this. And the only way they're going to get there is through conversation uh, rather than people taking offense and condemning. I appreciate the people who wrote with civility. Always appreciate that. But to get to where you want to get, we're going to have to have conversations and not prejudge. Check out the whole piece on civil discourse this weekend. I learned a lot from the students at Baldwin Wallace and from an organization called Braver Angels about how to get there. Let's begin. Who was Ohio Representative Tom Patton really serving in his sneaky attempt to block a widely hailed plan to have a protected bike lane in a key corridor of Cleveland, and why, once we publicized his underhanded move, do you say he's killing that effort? Laura, I, this was an ugly story. It is an ugly story, and it changed pretty quickly, a 180. I don't know exactly who Tom Pot Patton was trying to serve. He says he was paying attention to firefighters and businesses who were upset about this idea of bike lanes in the middle of Superior Avenue. But that seems... We'll we'll get into it. So apparently he didn't call any of the project's backers to discuss these issues before he inserted language into the state transportation bill to kill it. And it was very specific. It said cities over 300,000 people cannot put bike lanes in a median. Like, hello, point your finger at Cleveland. And this was going to block this $24.5 million midway project. By the way, fully funded, 12 years in the making, designed to insert this raised bike lane in the center of Superior for about 2.4 miles from Public Square to East 55th Street. It could be used for recreation, but it's mostly supposed to be a commuter option. And the thing is that these existed as streetcar lines before all of the automobiles and before all the buses. And if you've ever driven down Superior and it right past our old offices of Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer, there's barely any cars on it at all. And so Tom Patton took it upon himself to put this in the legislation and say he can't do it after he said some businesses and firefighters were concerned. But then lo and behold, he talked to the backers and they worked it out within what, an hour? Look, this we're learning about how Columbus works through the corruption trial of Larry Householder. This stinks. This mm-hmm. smells to thy heavens. A legislator on his own without discussing anything with 
anybody who's involved in long time planning tries to sneak through something that would block it and then goes, oops, oops, I was doing it in good faith. I'm throwing a flag. There's no good faith here. Right. Good faith would have been, man, I'm getting some complaints about this. Let me check and see what's going on. I'm not sure. But he was trying to stop it. You wonder who went to him. Who was right. he serving? He certainly wasn't serving the citizens of Cleveland. And he had no business inserting himself into something like this. This is about as sleazy as it gets. And he's from Strongsville. He's a state representative. So please, someone correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think he represents any part of Cleveland. So I'm not sure why he gets a say in this. Obviously, the state legislature can do whatever it wants, and it does. But the statement that that was in the news release late Wednesday after this House Finance Committee had householders saying that this is the way the legislative process is supposed to work. And no, it's no, no. like, it had, no, you said householder. it's not. You said householder. Oh, I said householder? <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. That's... Patton, talking about Patton, Patton put out a statement that said this is how the legislative uh, legislation process is supposed to work. And obviously it's not. You don't just put things in bills without talking to anybody about it first and then take it back when you get a lot of blowback. Well, actually, in his mind, this is the way it's supposed to work. Legislators serving special interests are supposed to sneak around in the dark and undo public spirited conversation. So is that where my Freudian slip came in? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it's just what he did here is completely wrong. There's no part of this that's supposed to work this way. And only when he got lambasted from all sides did he surrender and try and, and wiggle his way out. He has explaining to do. He needs to tell us who was he serving here? Because nobody's buying yeah. what he claims. If he were doing this in good faith, he would have talked to the people involved. And all the Cleveland officials seemed totally shocked by this. They had no idea this was coming. And they said he's trying to take away home rule, which the legislation legislature often does. And so they were, they were up in arms. And Cincinnati was mad, too, because think about it. If they can take it away from Cleveland, they can take it away from Cincinnati. Also another big city. What was interesting about this is is the middle of the the road, right? And that's probably where any kind of I don't know why that's the specific what the issue is, but it's a different idea. And one thing was interesting is that would prevent what they call right hook crashes from bikes bikers getting hit when cars turn right. Right. At, and and so this that makes a lot of sense. This is about safety. Cities are trying to draw people in by having things like protected bike lanes. Everybody in the legislature should be behind that. This isn't about anything but some special interest that got to him. We need to know who it is. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Are the Cleveland Guardians already over budget in the massive taxpayer-funded renovation project at Progressive Field and for comfy seats? Layla, this boggles the mind. We just went through a process where they're getting a huge amount of money from the public for the stadium. Yeah, it certainly seems that it could end up busting the budget if the current trend persists. The Guardians not long ago inked that new lease for Progressive Field. It calls for $435 million on capital repairs and ballpark improvements, much of that taxpayer-funded. About $100 million of that is for capital repairs. That's not to be confused with the big ballpark improvements that will dramatically change the, the look and feel of the place. These are maintenance needs, basically, and taxpayers pay for two-thirds of them. And within that $100 million was supposed to be a budget of about $7 million to pay for replacing the seats in the ballpark. 
well, with inflation and everything and blah, 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 the cost of replacing your standard seats has already gone up several millions. But now the Guardians have asked the Gateway Economic Development Corporation to carve out an additional $1.3 million from the capital repairs budget to install 2,100 premium seats. This is cushy, padded, high-backed seats for fans who are sitting right behind home plate. They say that's pretty par for the course among their peers in the world of ballparks, and and they want to keep pace. So at the moment, the $100 million capital repairs budget is capable of absorbing that cost. But if other improvements come in higher than anticipated, and I'm sure they will, they will end up busting the budget for sure. I hope this isn't because of you talking about what you prefer in the movies. I was thinking that. Oh, my God. <laughs> These aren't reclining I, seats. Like, let's be hey, clear. why not? Why Just go the whole way. <laughs> just triple it and put in the recliners. <laughs> yeah, I, I do wonder. I mean, I, it's just staggering that they would have the audacity to come in already and say they want more. And Ken Selman, the head of Gateway, said, hopefully they're going to come in less somewhere because this is not the best start. I mean, why not add a couple bucks onto every premium ticket price to cover the cost of the cushy home plate seats? Mm. I mean, do what the airport is doing to pay for upgrades to the rental car hub, right? Charge the people who use it. It's just pretty offensive to me. You're asking taxpayers to fund the stadium improvements and, and fine, you could make the case that a better stadium supports economic development. But asking taxpayers to pay for these cushy seats for rich people sitting in the premium section, I feel like that's a bridge too far. Look, you don't need cushioned seats to get people to fill those seats. Those seats are going to sell no matter oh, what. Yeah. And and we need a jail. You know, We don't really have the money to spend on cushy seats so that people can be comfy at the baseball game. They're only sitting in them for a few hours anyway. I thought the whole point was the Guardians were saying no one wants to sit during a baseball game. That's why we have to have all of these open air spaces with the bars. Good point. People, I thought, like to roam while they watch. And now, no, 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 they want to sit in the cushiest. Are we talking about two different types of consumers? Uh, but I, I agree. People will buy the seats as long as the team is good, as long as it's worth watching. Yeah. Yeah. Put a good team on the field. They'll buy the seats. Don't make the taxpayers pay for your cushions. And don't they have to be replaced regularly? They like have to be five be, years. They do. And the 1.3 million covers the installation and two replacements over the life of the lease. <laughs> but they have to be replaced every five years. Yeah. That's in 10 absurd. years, they'll ask for a new kind of seat anyway. Yeah. Of course. They'll ask for the recliners. The recliners. Yeah. Because, you know, every other ballpark has them, mommy and daddy. <laughs> You're listening to Today in Ohio. We have talked a good bit about how little power the state has to regulate railroads to avoid derailments like we saw in East Palestine. What are Ohio lawmakers thinking they might be able to do, Lisa? I don't think they really know. And they, it's unclear as to whether the legislature has the power to regulate railroads. It's really mostly a federal job. But the Ohio Finance Committee added some uh, things to the transportation bill requiring t- crews of at least two on all trains, wayside monitoring stations to detect malfunctions, and state officials are notified if rail crossings are blocked for more than five minutes. Minutes. These were proposed by Democrats on the Finance Committee, but uh, Ohio Railroad Association President 
Arthur Arnold says, wait one. He says, Ohio maker, all lawmakers should first wait until the report is released on the derailments cause, which may come as soon as today. And he says that, honestly, regulations need to be uniform nationally. You don't want to have one set of rules in Pennsylvania and another set of rules in Ohio and so on. He said what lawmakers could do is sign a non-binding resolution that urges Congress to take action on rail safety. But the Democrat from Cleveland, Representative Bride Rose Sweeney, says, well, we do have a role. We are state government. But Senator Matt Huffman, the Republican from Lima, says a Senate public hearing with the Ohio EPA director Ann Vogel and others will take place. And he said, but honestly, their hands are somewhat tied as far as regulations. Yeah, that I well, they talked about even putting a rule in that a train can't block an intersection for more than so many minutes. Other jurisdictions outside of Ohio have tried that. They've passed the rules. They don't stand. They that you just do not have that control. It is federal. There is a good argument to be made about having the same rules from state to state because the trains go from state to state. The problem really here is that the feds have not done the job. The Obama administration didn't do what it should have done. The Trump administration rescinded rules that were coming. And it's pretty easy what needs to be done. The, the U.S. Uh, Transportation Secretary laid it all out in a call earlier this week. They just need to do it instead of kowtowing to the rail industry. Right. But I, I do agree with Mr. Arnold. I, you know, I think we need federal regulations, just like we need a federal abortion law. So anyway, I mean, I, I just, yeah, I, I think they, that the legislature says they have a role, but I'm not sure that they do. Well, if they pass a joint resolution saying, hey, Republicans in Congress and Democrats in Congress do something, I don't know. Maybe maybe it helps. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Let's stick with the train. Lisa, Donald Trump was around East Palestine Wednesday saying the people who lived there were abandoned. But isn't he the guy who abandoned them by spiking the rules to regulate the railroads in the first place? Yeah, but don't you know, he did not talk about that at all during his little visit to East Palestine. He visited right as he and other Republicans are ratcheting up criticism of Biden's handling of the train derailment, including East Palestine Mayor Trent Conaway, who slammed Biden for visiting the Ukraine instead of East Palestine, said he doesn't care about us, but he later walked that back slightly. So Trump's visit that he uh, stopped at a creek, Little Beaver Creek, a waterway that was affected by the spill. He also stopped at the original Roadhouse restaurant, and he was greeted by residents lining the streets. There were plenty of Trump signs and flags and a Trump photo with the caption, a hero will rise. Interestingly enough, there were also Ron DeSantis 2024 signs. I'm sure Trump was not happy about that. But he also gave remarks at the East Palestine Fire Department with Senator J.D. Vance and Congressman Bill Johnson. Johnson in attendance. Um, he wanted to tell them you are not forgotten. And he said that FEMA would not send aid under any circumstance, which is not true. And then he went and bought McDonald's meals for all of the East Palestine firefighters. And other reporting says that he bought Trump branded water and cleaning supplies for the residents. Axios caught up with J.D. Vance after this and he described the people of Palestine as our people, which is jarring because basically saying we need to take care of them because they voted for us. 
and he's a U.S. senator for the whole state. When he says our people, he should be talking about everybody, not just the people in rural areas. There was a lot of uh, material that came out in the past couple of days that are saying the Republicans are trying to weaponize this based on race, mm-hmm. uh, saying that the Democrats have ignored East Palestine because they're white people, poor white people. And it's such a despicable thing to try and make this about race. And the circus is just not going away. CNN had a town hall last night in East Palestine where they had a bunch of angry residents come and, and, and talking. And, and I just, you know, there are so many unconfirmed reports, thousands of dead animals, thousands of dead fish. I mean, I, I haven't seen anything really official. Yeah, I think I think the fringe conservatives are seeing this as an opportunity to to use to rally their base, which is a shame because you're taking the suffering of some people and making it your own ugly stuff. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How many registered voters did Secretary of State Frank LaRose remove from the Ohio voter rolls because of inactivity? How can people find out if they're on that list, Laura? 100,020, wait, 124,158 voters, and those were purged for an inactivity. This happens regularly. The Supreme Court had a decision in 2018 with a 5-4 ruling that said this is legal, so we're not fighting it over anymore. But basically, if you haven't been active, you can get taken off the, the rolls. And if you do things, you can stay on. Things like if you perform some kind of alternate form of voter activity, update your registration, sign a petition, apply for an absentee ballot. Even if you don't actually vote, you'll stay on. They do go over this list. They took about 15,000 people off of the purge, uh, but this was finalized after the November election. LaRose said he's going to look at Erie County specially. They have a special election on February 28th before he decides who's getting purged there. But you can check your cancellations at HT. P, sorry, HTTPS, and then the backslash is registrationreadiness.ohiosos.gov. Voting rights activists always criticize these purges, but there is a legitimate reason for cleaning up the voter rolls. You don't want to have a whole bunch of dead people or inactive voters on it because it changes what the turnout is. If, if you have many, many, many people on the rolls who are really not around anymore to vote. They've moved, they've died, whatever. Then when we report the voter turnout, it's always lower than it would be if you were talking about truly active roles. It also does help reduce the chance of fraud. We talk all the time that fraud is not really something that happens. But if there are a bunch of people on the rolls that aren't voting, you could have people figure out who they are and impersonate them. Right, exactly. If you know a dead person's on the roll, you could try and and vote. And if they're not, if they've been purged from the list, it's a lot harder to do. Yeah, I it's it always brings out a a real fervor from the voting activists. But it kind of makes sense to do this at at some sort of regular intervals. You have to not vote for a long time I think to it's even get six, there. It's six years. Yeah. So I mean, you're talking about one general big election and then two more years of with a gubernatorial election. So and that's not doing anything. That's not voting, not requesting, not signing a petition. Um, so there's a lot of ways to stop yourself from being purged. And you can clearly see if you're on the list and take action to get back on it. Yes. You're listening to Today in Ohio. John Houston started his second term as lieutenant governor just over a month ago. 
He's got nearly four years to go in that job. Is he already running for the top job in 2026, Layla? Uh, I think so. On Wednesday, he filed paperwork with the state forming the John Houston for Ohio campaign committee and splitting off from the joint committee that he formed with Governor DeWine when he became his running mate back in 2018. And this has been a long-held ambition for him. You know, initially he was running against DeWine in 2018 in the Republican primary election before joining the campaign. And uh, on account of that decision, he had to shut down his statewide campaign committee. So the paperwork he filed this week revives that co- that committee, which allows him to immediately begin raising money. And we should note that he hasn't confirmed that he's running for governor, but he did check a box on his candidate paperwork saying that that's what he's doing. What... Um What I find interesting is where he finds the time to run for governor. He's a lieutenant governor, very active in the role in economic development. He sits on the board of a private bank, which is shocking, one of the first elected officials to do that. How is he going to have the time to run for governor? That's a very good question. We'll we'll have to see. He's got, you know, several years before it's going to ramp up. But, um, yeah. He's, and he's, you know, as you said, he's also he serves as the director of Innovate Ohio, this this office that DeWine created for him to pursue economic development and state government modernization initiatives. That's got to take, uh, you know, all your focus. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. Well, and there's no doubt that he works hard in the role as lieutenant governor. He's very active in economic development. If you talk to any business person, they they deal with him. He's not somebody that's just directing people and sitting in an yeah, ivory He's tower, much more so. visible than most lieutenant governors tend to be. With success. So we'll, we'll have to see how that goes. It is today in Ohio. Larry Householder's former right-hand man was on the stand Wednesday in the former House Speaker's corruption trial. Lisa, what was his testimony? Yeah, Jeff Longstreth, who is Householder's former top political advisor, was testifying about a few things, but the testimony yesterday focused on a half million dollars from First Energy uh, that went to Householder for as benefits. But Household attorneys have, Householder's attorneys have maintained that it was a loan from Jeff Longstreth and not a bribe. But Longstreth says, well, it started out as a personal loan, but Householder refused to sign a loan agreement. He never listed this money in his state financial disclosure documents. This payment was back in 2017, and it was used to pay householders credit card bills, legal bills, and repairs to his second home in Naples, Florida. He later sold that home for $600,000, but at a profit, but never thanked Longstreth for the loan or never repaid it. So, but after House Bill 6 passed in 2019, householder According to Longstreth, asked Longstreth, are you whole? Longstreth took it to mean that did he make enough money from the operation to forgive that $500,000 loan? And the FBI estimates, although we don't really know, they estimate that Longstreth made $2.5 million in this deal. And of course, the prosecution argues that this is just money from the bribery scheme that Householder pocketed. When you look at this testimony from a juror's standpoint, you've got to think that are you whole will carry a ton of weight. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that was the quote that it was like, huh, <laughs> that, that, that basically says wasn't a loan, wasn't anything. This was my cut. I got money out of this deal just like you got money out of this deal. 
Um, very, very interesting. This is the first time we'd heard from him since he pleaded guilty. It right? is. It is. And I, I believe he's still on the stand, so we'll hear more. But uh, now, uh, Mike Dowling, a first energy lobbyist, said that uh, he told Longstreth to set up an entity to receive undisclosed, unlimited contributions, that entity being Generation Now. Yeah, I, I suspect what we're going to hear today is householders' attorneys trying to make this sound like a gift that was disclosed on his form, which will raise all sorts of questions about how lax Ohio's disclosure laws are. Good stuff. Really strong story by Jake laying this out because, as he points out in the story, a lot of this information had come out before the testimony put it into a great deal more perspective. It's Today in Ohio. All right, Layla, how many people or entities have been labeled vexatious litigators? What a great term in Ohio, <laughs> meaning they're barred from filing lawsuits. Who's the latest to join the club? We're all aware of these folks because they write us letters that go on and on, and it vexes us as well. Yes, I'm so glad I got this question because I wrote a story about 15 years ago about vexatious litigators, and I remember it was so fun to look into the cases that led to some folks earning that de designation. So Ohio is one of at least 12 states that allow judges to declare parties to be vexatious litigators. And basically, these are people who just file tons of frivolous or legally pointless lawsuits. The law that permits the court to issue this designation was designed to attempt to prevent abuse of the court system. So if you're a vexatious litigator, you have to get permission to make legal filings. There's a process by which you can seek to have someone declared a vexatious litigator, and then the law requires judges to make sure that the party's litigation is bogus and can't be supported by a good faith argument or basically serves to harass someone or delay in action. So there are 242 vexatious litigators in Ohio. 42 of them are in Cuyahoga County. Um, or it's or it's you know in the common pleas, domestic relations, or juvenile courts. The most recent addition to Ohio's list is the Huber Heights Veterans Club in the Dayton area. This group filed an endless string of lawsuits against residents, trying to argue that the residents' property actually belonged to the club. And when the whenever the judge ruled in favor of one of the residents, the club would file another lawsuit. So they were declared vexatious litigators back in May, and they appealed. Then the Ohio Supreme Court just upheld that designation this week. You really have to be annoying to get to the <laughs> point where they say, you don't have the right to file a lawsuit. You're done. Go away. I'll tell you, I remember interviewing some of the people who were on the list 15 years ago, and I would argue some of them had some mental instability. I, I That's all I can say about them. But Laura's story includes some really interesting examples from, from the list. In Cuyahoga County, there was one guy who filed 20 lawsuits against Motel 6 after the hotel kicked him out because he had outstayed the, the legal restriction on staying more than 30 days in a hotel. And the cases were all terminated in the motel's favor. So he got that vexatious stamp. <laughs> and uh, another guy filed a bunch of lawsuits and claims against RTA. And most of those were deemed frivolous too. Just um, this is always a fascinating topic for me. <laughs> I, I wonder if there's a way of creating this for vexatious emails and other things, because we all get that kind of stuff. Yes. Yes. Anyway, interesting story. Check it out. It's on Cleveland.com. University Hospitals is spending a bundle of money on birthing centers, but it's also closing one. Laura, how much is the system spending and where is the money going? 
Well, they're spending $25.5 million, but a small portion of that is on the birthing centers. It's about $1.8 million. And what they're going to do is they're going to renovate the birthing center at TriPoint and add an addition of a couple of NICU suites. That's a neonatal intensive care unit. And then close the birthing suite at Lake West. These are two hospitals in Lake County. They're about 20 minutes apart. And so they are UH, as we've talked many times in the last year about, are trying to consolidate services. And they've closed some hospitals and trying to make other ones better. So, um, yeah, <laughs> ask me another question. There's another $24 million that is going to Lake West where they're going to add hybrid cardiac and vascular labs, expanded services in the endoscopy and bronchoscopy department, and renovate surgery waiting rooms and relocate hospital administration offices. But they're closing one, right? They're closing the one at Lake West, which is kind of funny. So they're expanding a lot of things at Lake West. They're spending $24 million for all those things I just said with all sorts of things in the hospital. But then they're they're closing their labor and delivery and making it better at TriPoint, which is 20 minutes away. So I, I get that. I guess you'll still be able to get some services at Lake West, like um, maternity services and breastfeeding help. At least they still have a birthing center in their counties. I mean, there are some counties, and I want to say it's Medina and Portage in our coverage area, that have no labor and delivery centers in their counties at all. Yeah, it's become more difficult. It does require some travel, but the ones that are operating are, are pretty top of the line, right? Yeah, so they're going to make this much nicer for, for people to have kids. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. I think that does it. Lisa, I didn't miss a question today, no, sir. did I? <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> I'm glad you caught me yesterday. So thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Leah. Thank you, Laura. Thanks, everybody who listens. We'll be back Friday wrapping up the week. <laughs>